Thank you, Kevin. I was sitting next to his father saying, we love our kids, don't we? Yeah. Blessings to all of you. What a beautiful drive out here. Wow, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. Who is the King of glory? How shall we know him? He's Emmanuel, the promised of ages. Praise the Lord, all you righteous. It is fitting that the upright should praise him. Praise the Lord on your harps. Make music to him on your ten-string lyre. Play skillfully and shout for joy, for the voice of the Lord is righteous and true. He is faithful in all that he does, for the Lord loves righteousness and kindness. The whole earth is full of his unfailing love, said the 33rd Psalm. The whole earth is full of his unfailing love. You're either learning to see it or you're not. I'll take you back to the last third of the 8th century BC. There is a prophet named Jeremiah, who you know, who is also called the Lamenting Prophet. In fact, I contend that one of the occupational hazards of a prophetic sensibility is a proneness to depression. They're so passionate and intense that they get emotionally drained, and that's a natural recipe for a cycle called depression. Okay. This is long before there were any medicinal interventions when we get depressed. And please don't think that depression is a manifestation of a lack of godliness because the prophets consistently were depressed. In fact, the Apostle Paul in his, what I would call the oldest resume in human history, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, he says of he and his, uh, uh, his evangelistic friends, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Can you relate to that? The paradox that is in Christ, we know sorrow, yet we know that that sorrow is informed by the joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah chapter 8 reminds us. The joy of the Lord, even in your depression, even in your sorrow, is your strength. Hallelujah. But let me remind you, a text worth memorizing, <laughs> Lamentations, traditionally associated with the Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 3, verses 17 through about 23. Just listen to this. The prophet Jeremiah, in his depression, says, I've been robbed of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. I've lost my splendor and all that I'd hoped for in the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering. In other words, the things that I wish I didn't have to remember, I remember. And the things that I wish I could forget, I can't. Ever been there? On this Memorial Day, where our human propensity is to forget what we should remember and remember what we should forget? <laughs> what Christ wants to do in you is intervene. So we get on that good ship called remembering what we should remember and forgetting what we should forget. Hallelujah. I remember my affliction and my wandering and the bitterness and the gall so that my soul is downcast. Well, that's depression. <laughs> you don't have to be psychologically trained to be able to diagnose that. 
And yet, what does this depressed prophet do? But this I will call to mind so that I have hope. Now, before I tell you what he called to mind, and you probably know what he called to mind because you sing what he called to mind, but you don't understand that while you're singing it, it was written by somebody who was probably, by our standards, immobilizingly depressed. And when you get depressed, as we sang this morning, wait on the Lord. (laughs) Right? Call to mind something that will be an overarching informant even of your discouragement and depression. But this I will call to mind so that I have hope. Now before I I describe what he called to mind, let me remind you of a working definition of hope and why we need it, why counselors, when there are people in conflict, institutions in tension, the first thing they try to reestablish is hope. And working through the years with scores of troubled marital couples, the first thing you try to establish is hope. And here's a working definition. And I encourage people not to just memorize scripture, which is primary, but also work, memorize working definitions that ring true to you. So that whenever the word comes up, you have an operational definition of what it means. And here's a working definition of hope and why it's so essential. Why it's associated with promised lands. It is the purpose behind perseverance. That's what hope is. And that's why it's so centrally important. It is the purpose behind perseverance. It is the answer as to why you should keep Being faithful, (laughs) even in the midst of discouragement. Hope is always associated with promised lands. And in that great, great illustration, historic illustration of the children of Israel, they were persisting, following the cloud by day and the fire by night. Why? Because they were heading for the promised land. You take the hope of that promised land away and they wonder why they're continuing to put one foot in front of the other. What is your hope related to your marriage, related to this church, related to your community? Hope is the purpose behind perseverance. It is the context of answering the ultimate why question, why persevere in your virtue and in your commitment to Christ-likeness. But this I will call to mind, said the prophet Jeremiah, so that I will have hope. And this is what he called to mind. It is because of the Lord's loving kindness that we are not consumed. His mercies, they fail not. They are new every morning. And you know the next phrase. What is it? Great is thy faithfulness. In other words, he could retrieve on command as circumstances required him to retrieve it so that he had context even for his discouragement and his depression. This is how the word of God works. Now note, he was too poor to own a Bible. <laughs> uh, what is that scripture now? No, he didn't have a Bible. They were communally owned. That explosion that allowed Bibles to become less expensive and distributed throughout the world happened as a result of the Gutenberg Press 50 years before Martin Luther.
It is because of the Lord's loving kindnesses that we are not consumed. His mercies, they fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And you can imagine... And as a, as a theater professor, I try to tell my students and congregations that I can speak to, when you're reading the scripture and trying to memorize the scripture that moves you, it's scriptures that move you, that inspire you. Because as Abraham Joshua Heschel said, inspiration passes. Having been inspired never passes. In other words, if you can retrieve that inspirational text on command, It becomes an oasis of the mind whenever you need it. That's what the prophets did. That's what the patriarchs did. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ did. That's what the apostles did. That's what the martyrs did. Many of them long before the Gutenberg Press was invented in 1455. Let me give you some other examples of the importance of this from Scripture. Jesus in the wilderness. Again, just so that you'll see that this is imperative, that you hide the Word of God on your heart. Write it on the tablets of your heart. This is the repeated command of the patriarchs, and we proceed to ignore it because we can look it up. But it's always seven seconds too late. Or seven hours or seven months too late. If we can retrieve it on command, it becomes an oasis of the mind. It's an invitation circumstantially to redeem the circumstances. Here's Jesus in the wilderness, described in both Matthew 4 and Luke 4, right? Satan, the prince of darkness, who knows who Jesus is, somehow there was a pre-existent connection where Satan, the prince of demons, and uh, the Beelzebub and all of the demons knew who Jesus was. Which is a very interesting discussion Christologically, isn't it? And he had to tell them repeatedly, shut up. Stop! Even as he told the ghoul in Mark 5, Swear to God that you will not torture me before the time, the ghoul said to Jesus, the terrorizer who killed men. But Jesus, our Savior, terrorized even the terrorizer. But here's Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. And remember, temptations are tempting because they're tempting. (laughs) We think sometimes Jesus, as the Son of God in the wilderness, didn't experience the hunger. It wasn't tempting that Satan's temptation first. Hey, I know who you are, essentially Satan said. I know that you have the power. And how did he know he had the power? Jesus had the power to turn rocks into bread. We're reminded of this when we think of Luke 17, what Jesus said, uh, Father, glorify me now with the glory we shared before the creation of the world. Jesus, the Son, says to his Father in a prayer. 
But Satan says, I know who you are. I know you have the power to change these rocks into bread, and I know you're hungry. And it was a temptation, that first one, because it was tempting. What does Jesus say? Uh, Excuse me, Satan. I know it's here somewhere. Jesus is too poor to own a Bible. He has it here. Oh, yeah, it's because he's the son of God and he's brilliant. He was brilliant, yes, but he did the work. And memorized, like the other rabbis, all of the Pentateuch. That means all 50 chapters of Genesis, 40 chapters of uh, Exodus, 27 of Leviticus, and so on. He knew all the Psalms. Why? Because he sang the Psalms. And you say, wow, what an incredible event, an intellectual accomplishment. But you know what? If I were to play your 150 favorite pop tunes through the years that you've lived here in the Western culture, the first few measures would be played and you'd be able to sing the chorus, wouldn't you? Right? For those of you remembering the, uh, uh, the band from the 60s and 70s, you could hear the first few riffs of Smoke on the Water and you would be able to sing the chorus. How many can relate to that? That's how it works. You remember what you sing. They knew the Psalms because they sang the Psalms. Jesus in the wilderness tempted the first time. Make, turn these rocks into bread. I know who you are. And what does Jesus do? Uh, uh, I know it's somewhere. No, because he knows Deuteronomy. He quotes immediately Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 3. Man doesn't live by bread alone. And what that does, like Jeremiah's calling to mind, it calls to mind an overarching truth that contextualizes the reality of his hunger and his temptation. Man doesn't live by, people don't live by bread alone. And he's able to retrieve that on command. That's our Savior. Just wait, he's not done. The next temptation. He retrieves Deuteronomy 6.16. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then Satan, who knows enough scripture to quote Psalm 91, verses 9 through 12. Jesus responds by contextualizing, providing the overarching truth that even informs Psalm 91, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus in the wilderness prior to his earthly, as he's starting his earthly ministry, read it in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, worth memorizing. Responds to temptation, very real temptation, by being able to retrieve on command that oasis of the mind eternally. Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.16 and 18, 6.13 and 6.16. Wait, there's more. Uh, The apostle Peter, who had been with Jesus for three years, who was the one that gave the right answer, who do you think I am? Others say I'm Elijah, rise from the dead. Others say I'm one of the prophets. Others, I'm... John the Baptist, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow. You know the story of Peter? I'll never leave you. Uh, Denies him three times. 
unlike Judas who hung himself, Peter after his betrayal. And what is a betrayal or an act of disloyalty? It's treating somebody that you know as, the, as if you don't know them. It's a betrayal, is something that strikes, strips a cord of bondedness between family and friends. Peter experienced that three times, yet the next time we see him, he's preaching to thousands, without a microphone, by the way. <clears throat> without a microphone. And what does Peter, who is, who is a fisherman, Jesus saw in him this incredible capacity to be intensely committed he, Peter responds to the, to the Spirit coming at Pentecost. People are asking him, thousands are asking him, what is this about and what does Peter do? He doesn't own a Bible. He's too poor to own a Bible. But he has memorized the Scripture because this was the pattern of his Messiah. And what does he do in this eight-minute sermon that changes the world? On command, without looking it up in the book, he can retrieve portions of Joel 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my servants, both men and women, I will pour forth my spirit and they will prophesy. Peter, quoting from memory, there's no notes, no sermon notes. He's responding extemporaneously to the opportunities that the Spirit provided. Quotes from Joel 2. And then he quotes from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. Now allow my, your Holy One to see decay. He's quoting David a thousand years before Pentecost. Prophesying the resurrection of Jesus. And then he, on command, as circumstances invite him to redeem it. Quote Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. On command. No notes. Responding extemporaneously to the circumstances of the moment. That's power. And we know after that eight-minute sermon... 3,000 people came forward. And again, Peter preaching without a microphone. <clears throat> and I want you who are raised in film and theater to, whenever you read the Scriptures, the stories of the Scripture, envision how you would stage it, how you would film it. That's another talk when I sometime could talk about theatrical hermeneutics, how to apply rules of oral interpretation even to ancient texts like the Bible that don't give you what we call any parentheticals. They give you no opportunities to see if there were pauses, and there were pregnant pauses. <sighs> How things were said. Now, by the way, Peter wasn't done being blown away. Read eight chapters later when his jaw is dropped, realizing that this call of salvation is not just for Jews. <laughs> now, I also want to introduce, probably not to a lot of you, but maybe to some of you, the Jewish concept of Shema, 
Where do you start memorizing? And I think that the elders are probably going to provide some hints. But I'm going to say to you, if you're going to keep a habit of memorizing Scripture, it's what moves you, not what somebody else tells you to memorize. In your Scripture reading, as you've come to a text and you go, wow, I call it the wowzer factor. Oh, put it in the back of your journal, whether it's digital or manual. Give yourselves two weeks to start looking for Scriptures that are worth memorizing. And then attack them one at a time. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Remember the Jewish concept of Shema. The Jews would say the Shema twice a day when they got up and, and, and at night. Every day. And it was something that contextualized their whole life, not just their cognitive life, which included their temptations and their thoughts. And the most famous one from Scripture is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and mind. Write these commands on the tablet of your heart. Again, a metaphor for memorization, I would argue. Easily. Write these commands on the tablet of your heart. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them while you're sitting at home and walking along the road, while you're lying down, while you're getting up. Tie them as symbols upon your hands and bind them upon your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and upon your gates. They would say that, the faithful Jew, twice a day, at least and sometimes more. Why? Because it was the hub of their thought wheel. All of their discouragement, all of their temptations was subject to that confessional Shema. What's your Shema? And for Jews, they would do it over a lifetime. I encourage Christians to have a Shema one a year at least. And if you want to know where to begin, if you're married, start with your vows. <laughs> if you belong to an institution that has a mission statement, memorize that as a Shema. Because mission statements mean nothing to the people at the table unless they can retrieve them on command conversationally. They mean nothing. What's your Shema? I would encourage you also to put, and this is a, 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 a handout called Stewarding the Stirrings of the Soul. You'll have this available. Put your spiritual antenna up. For the rest of your life. But begin by doing a seven to ten day journey of collecting verses, of phrases, of shamas you want to hide on your heart. And you say, well, I'm too old for this. I started the memorization program as a program called Stewarding the Stirrings of the Soul for the Elderly. Because as we heard just earlier, the way that our bodies are made, we can exercise even in our 90s. We got to start slow. But the way we are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14, is that we can arrest deterioration, uh, including the deterioration in that portion of the brain that refuses to memorize anything. Start slow. Put your spiritual antenna up. Begin a seven to ten day journey of collecting verses you want to hide on your heart. And then thirdly, I will say this to you. Be patient. Be patient. 
It takes time to learn your doable memorization pace. I started memorizing a verse a day in 1993. Why? Because I'd left the pulpit ministry to do graduate work in theater. I didn't leave the pulpit ministry because of a scandal. I'm very capable of scandal, <laughs> as we all are. But I knew that I wasn't going to be as involved in the scripture study because I wasn't no longer getting paid for writing sermons, which I realized in retrospect were strictly C plus, B minus. I've got the tapes, what they, had to, what they had to be exposed to. So I decided as a theater student, as an acting student, to memorize a verse a day. My memory has never been better. Because I'm practicing all the time. Be patient, it takes time to learn your doable memorization pace. Taking on too much can only lead to discouragement and an excuse for stopping the memorization discipline. If you're a senior citizen and haven't done this in a while, at least in Sunday school when you got a memory verse sticker for saying the verse, remember that? You gotta start slow. Five pound weights, maybe a phrase a week. See, I'm inviting you to consider deciding what you want to remember. That's a good decision to make every day. What do I want to remember? And then practice remembering it. Practice remembering it. Practice remembering it. What do you think Jesus did on his way home from some of those carpentry jobs that he had prior to his earthly ministry? Oh yeah, he was praying, but probably also reciting the text. The regular habit of memorization includes deciding what you want to remember, then practicing remembering it. By the way, this is something I share in secular audiences. Because it's the same problem. Nobody is memorizing anything because we can look it up. It's all outboard memory. It comes at a price tag. We in the 21st century have the privilege of cultivating a sacred interiority through inboard memory. And thanks be to God for the internet and all these instruments that allow us to see things come to them right away. But it's not the same. There's an arrogance of literacy that says, why memorize anything? I can look it up. But again, it's always seven seconds too late. Set up a plan to review the memorized scriptures, and I think daily. You don't think you have the time, you have the time. <laughs> Monitor and moderate your engagement with pop culture. You'll find you have the time. When's a good time to recite and review the, mem- the verses that you've memorized? Chores while you're doing them around the house. A commute to work, turn off talk radio. Or that music that wants to take you to its mood pocket, you be the captain and say, I want to for 10 minutes review the scriptures that I'm working on. And don't get discouraged. Or when thoughts of discouragement settle in. And I want to encourage you to start an encouragement file, if you haven't already, digitally or manually. Anyone that says something to you that's encouraging about who you are in Christ, write it down, put it in your file, and retrieve it when you're discouraged. But also retrieve verses about who you are, why you are, where you are in Christ when you're discouraged. Discouragement is always a trigger to retrieve what's eternally powerful and truthful when you're tempted especially 
That's when you retrieve your shamas, your marital vows, your mission statements. When tempted, this is the example of Jesus in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. Don't allow the temptation to dominate you. Instead, allow the scriptures to take over in that moment. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What's the mechanics of that? As you're immobilized with temptations and attitudes of doubt and lust and negative comparison, social comparison. Try being involved in that attitude while you're trying to retrieve the words of Christ. You can't do it. (laughs) It's the way our mind is wired. See the example of Jesus. See the example of the patriarchs. See the example of the apostles. Hide the word of God.